All right. Good morning. This presentation is going to be sermon four in a larger ep episodic series that we started, I guess, over a year ago on the church and science. The presentation today is going to differ from the other three in the sense that it's much more elliptic. I found that um, the past three, what ends up happening is you, I try to have a thesis, you try to present a point, you want to make a point, and so you accumulate pieces of evidence. And so sometimes you reach into sort of distant disciplines or points of view or literature to grab a piece of evidence, and then now the question is how deeply do you explicate that piece of evidence? I mean, are you going to how deeply are you going to get into the history and so forth. And I found that what I was doing is that oftentimes with topical ideas, I would sort of burn a lot of time kind of unraveling them. And so I want to kind of get out of that practice. I don't think it's necessary. Today there's going to be a couple sort of, uh, call them pieces of evidence, a couple points where we're just going to sort of do kind of like a table of contents kind of thing. I'm just going to, it's just, they're going to be brought up just, because we happen to be on this subject. <clears throat> so I'm going to start, um, as if that wasn't starting, that was sort of a preamble. I'm going to tell you a very brief story, and uh, I, I want to forewarn you that this story has a very cheap storyline device, okay? And you'll know it when you hear it. Um, but I, I wanted to tell you ahead of time so you didn't think I was setting you up. So uh, some time ago, a friend of mine uh, was telling me that he, he had uh, suffered a very serious accident where he lost one of his arms. <clears throat> and I guess when that happens, it's not uncommon for people, when they suffer a physical loss like that or suffer a loss, they have sort of an emotional reckoning. They have this a time at some point afterwards where sort of the reality of that whole, reality of their situation kind of sets in and it hits them. It can be very dramatic, and, uh, and it was for this person. He was overwhelmed with emotion and you know, crying and all that stuff. And, um, and, he, and he prayed. He asked God to restore his arm. He asked God to restore his arm. And then he, he recounted that when he asked God to restore his arm, he felt embarrassed because he realized that God doesn't do those kinds of miracles, Right? doesn't just give you your arm back. You know, you can do all kinds of things, but you can't get an arm back. And uh, so he felt embarrassed and he felt stupid. And then he, he woke up. And so he was laying there in bed. He was covered in sweat, very still, very anxious. And he realized that the accident and the reckoning were things that were just contrivances of his dream. And so there he was with both of his arms in perfect health. That is not a miracle to me, okay? I, I don't think most people would consider that a miracle, like a miracle, miracle. But um, my friend recounted that, um, you know, for long moments, while he laid there in bed, just sort of this, you know, the huge transition from the dream state to the awake state, he felt like a miracle had happened. But then in retrospect, in hindsight, he's like, ah, oh, that's not really a miracle. After all, it was just, a, it was only a dream. It was only a dream. But we know, I mean, that dreams are sort of, famous, if we can use that term, for really evoking or provoking often in us a really powerful emotion, right? Okay, 
And another very brief story. <clears throat> this is a true story. It wasn't a dream. So a week ago, minus a few hours, late Sunday night, for the people who are, live close to Los Angeles, or in Los Angeles, around the general geographic area here, that was when the, a big storm came in. Big, giant storm. And um, so I'm down in Long Beach, and um, I have this habit. I, I usually go to sleep relatively early, at least compared to a lot of my friends. I, I usually pass out around 10 or 11, and then I invariably wake up at like 2 or 3 in the morning. And, uh, and then, depending on how I'm feeling, maybe I'll get a little snack, or I'll, I'll respond to some emails, or text some people back. Um, and so I check my I check my email, check my texts, and I'd received a, a, a text from a friend um, who asked me two questions. The first question was, "Has the storm hit you yet?" And then the second question was, "Have you decided what the topic for the fourth in the series is going to be? The fourth uh, sermon in the series, Church and Science, is going to be?" So I got up, looked out the window, and I could see right when I was looking out the, out the window, it was maybe 2:33 in the morning. I could see the rain was just starting to come down. It was really just pouring, pouring, pouring. So I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, the storm's hitting. And it's like, and then I texted the response. It's like, uh, oh, yeah, it's going to be on miracles. And it wasn't, it wasn't five seconds after I typed that that my entire house was shaken by a thunderclap. Just like. <laughs> so miracles it is for today. Okay, so what we're going to do is um, we're going to ask a, kind of a Sunday school question, and we're going to give it a very Sunday school approach um, in, in sort of reviewing and sort of uh, kind of taking an examination of particular uh, episodes in the Bible, the evangelical books, where Jesus performed miracles with this sort of uh, idea of the question, why? Like, why did Jesus perform miracles? I mean, they're a very big part of the Bible, certainly of the evangelical books, right? A very big part. I mean, you have teachings that we've, Damon has been uh, preaching on. And um, so we have sayings and preachings, wisdom, and then we have these miracles. And between the two of them, outside of some you know, genealogies and external histories, that basically makes up the evangelical books. It makes up the story of the, of the disciples of Jesus. And so the question is, well, why miracles? Like, why, you know, why the big production? Um, and what we're going to do is just topically, just very topical approach, we're going to visit five possible answers to that question. But again, there's sort of a, this is a Sunday school approach. And of course, how you answer that question depends greatly on one's points of view, one's point of view, um, how you sort of try to parse that a question like why, like the depth, the philosophical depth whenever you ask the question why, right? There's, it's sort of a kind of an abstract sort of question to be answering. So this is just a very light touch kind of approach. Um, and by the way, the, the examples that we're going to visit here will be very brief, and they're actually not really the point of the sermon. We're going to, after the five examples, we're going to uh, offer a little bit of commentary, and then I want to introduce two points. That's the whole point of this service is the introduction of two points or two conjectures they're not theses, they're not well-fleshed-out theses as we have I've attempted to present in the first three sermons. They're just points, and a lot of it is flavored by my own opinion, um, and I would welcome that you sort of, if the, if the topic interests you, to maybe give it some meditation, some prayer, and, uh, and uh, see what you think. See what you think. But it's not really a well-formed thesis. Um, okay.
So the first one, the first example I have, and again, you could come up with a lot of different ways of looking at this. Um, I did some online studying, and I found sort of convergence between different people's points of view. The first one, a really popular one, is um, as an expression, miracles are an expression of compassion. So, uh, and a commonly cited example of this is at the beginning of uh, Mark, uh, chapter 1, verse 41, we're, we're told that uh, Jesus was moved with compassion. Jesus was moved with compassion. And uh, I would not count on, if I were you, I would not count on me to give a good explanation of this. It's my understanding um, that some of the translations uh, don't use the word compassion. They use the word incensed. Um, but for whatever it's worth, I mean, uh, I think we all can sort of appreciate that sometimes compassion and anger go together. Nonetheless, that's a possible reason why Jesus performed uh, miracles, at least in a sort of a topical uh, point of view. Okay, another one that was really common that I saw was to bring glory to God, bring glory to God. And we see evidence of this certainly in the reaction of the uh, witnesses, the onlookers. So in uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 8, after Jesus heals uh, a paralytic, um, we're told that, and I'm reading from the uh, Common English Bible, when the crowd saw what had happened, they were afraid and praised God, who had given such authority to human beings. Later on in Matthew, chapter 15, verse 31, um, by this time Jesus was attracting very large crowds, and, uh, and so he's by the Sea of Galilee on a mountain, uh, and people have sort of figured out that he has this very desirable ability to cure people of their sicknesses, to liberate people from their maladies. So in verse uh, 31 of chapter 15, uh, we're told, again from the Common English Bible, so the crowd was amazed when they saw those who had been unable to speak, talking, and the paralyzed cured, and the injured walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Another answered the possible question of why miracles. Fulfillment. Uh, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, we're told uh, that evening people brought to Jesus many who were demon-possessed. He threw the spirits out with just a word. He healed everyone who was sick. This happened so that what Isaiah the prophet said would be fulfilled. He is the one who took our illnesses and carried away our diseases. A very famous reference to Isaiah 53. And this comes, by the way, right after Jesus frees uh, Peter's um, mother-in-law with, uh, of a fever. Okay, four, four or five, for uh, confirmation, affirmation of authority, to confirm Jesus' authority. And we look at the book of John, chapter 10, verses 37, 38. If I don't do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them and you don't believe me, Believe the works so that you can know and recognize that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now, this is not a response to a particular um, encounter or episode or a particular uh, uh, interaction that Jesus had with a, a sick person. It's an interesting setting. This is the Feast of Dedication, Festival of Dedication. I think, I wouldn't be absolutely certain of this, I think that that's more commonly known as Hanukkah, what we call Hanukkah now. And Jesus is having a confrontation with uh, religious leaders of Jerusalem, and they're 
assailing him is sort of in the aftermath of all these miraculous deeds that Jesus is doing, but they're really assailing him and uh, throwing objections at him. They even threaten to stone him uh, concerning Jesus' authority uh, or self-reported authority to be God or to, to do the works of God. Um, recalling the paralyzed man from uh, the, para- the paralytic from Matthew chapter 9, we see a similar type of conveyance of authority. Um, verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Jesus then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the fifth one that we'll consider, the importance of faith. Why miracles, the importance of faith. Maybe not the ideal choice of words, um, the uh, sort of maybe instead of importance of faith, expression of faith maybe. Um, In Matthew, uh, a little after the healing of the paralytic in chapter 9, well, Jesus is en route to heal the daughter of an important political figure, a woman long affected with chronic bleeding. Uh, he encounters a, a woman long afflicted with ca- uh, chronic bleeding. Her objective is to merely touch the garment of, of Jesus. Just touch the garment. And she does, and Jesus I felt it or saw it, and he reacted to it. And Matthew chapter 9, verse 22, when Jesus turned and saw her, he said, Be encouraged, daughter, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that time on. It's an interesting, again, this is one of those things where we could really explore this passage because it's pretty fascinating. So, I mean, the setting is Jesus is going with an important political figure. Um, and uh, I, I guess it was uh, the, his, the important political figure's daughter had passed away. And so Jesus was following him, and I guess Jesus and his followers were following this important political figure back to this person's house, and on the way this happened. And, and it's interesting because you figure an important political figure, the woman just touches the gar- wants to touch the garment. There's sort of this weird feeling or this lurking, I shouldn't say weird, but this sort of percolating feeling of humility, like the lady the, uh, did not want to intervene on Jesus helping this really important person, like get in his way, like Jesus is with the important political figure, they're on a mission, they're going to do something, and she didn't want to like jump right in front of him, it's like, ah, please help me, so she just touched the garment, and that was sufficient, that was sufficient, the importance or the role of faith, an expression of faith, okay, so that's it with the examples, I think one thing we can all agree on, I think almost everybody would agree on this, even if they weren't a believer. From an evangelical point of view, from an evangelical point of view, miracles appear to be tremendously effective at leaving an impression. <clears throat> at the end of the book of Mark, um, in uh, chapter 16, this is sort of the Jesus' commission to his disciples. Um, chapter 19, or excuse me, verse 19, uh, chapter 16, uh, again from the Common English Bible. After the Lord Jesus spoke to them, he was lifted up into heaven and sat down on the right side of God. But they, the disciples, went out and proclaimed the message everywhere. The Lord worked with them, confirming the word by the signs associated with them. So this whole idea of signs is sufficiently synonymous with miracle for me. So 
these same sort of powers, these same unusual um, feats that Jesus was doing was passed on to his disciples. And let's face it, so here we are 2,000 years later, give or take a few years, and the Word of God is everywhere, worldwide, and it's been everywhere for a long time. So they must have been doing something right. So this, I, these miracles or these signs, whatever you want to call them, left an impression. They left an impression, a very significant impression. Okay, so having said that, um, this is just this is my own point of view. Uh, I would be a little bit surprised... I would be a little bit surprised, at least a little bit surprised, if um, someone who was even just a little bit mature in the faith leaned heavily or sort of hung their hat on any of the miracles. <clears throat> so, for example, if someone came to me and said, um, Brother Dave, hey, did you hear that God is compassionate? You know, I, I don't think I'd be like, you don't say. I've never heard of this before. Do you happen to have some miracle that would sort of help make that point? The entire redemptive process just breathes compassion, right? So we can get all of these, these why answers, at least these sort of Sunday school why answers that we sort of topically covered very briefly. We get them in a much more substantive form in the larger mission of Christ, in the larger redemptive process of God. Same thing with God's glory, same thing with fulfillment, same thing with affirmation of authority, and same thing with the role of faith. These come to us in much more substantive ways than just as sort of uh, corollaries or sort of concomitant kind of um, events or positions or statements that happen to go along with these miraculous or improbable events. Um, and this is going to be very, uh, very superficial. So there is a discipline um, called uh, illusionist. And people call it magician. So you can be a magician. Most modern magicians, and I think historically magicians, make a, uh, try to make a very clear point of um, having people refer to them or referring to themselves as illusionists. And like any other uh, discipline, there are certain techniques that are common to illusionists that help them with their craft. Um, and there are certain assets that they rely on to do their craft. So um, one of these techniques is called a, a force. It's a force. Um, a force is where you give a mark, uh, your, your subject, um, the impression of making a free choice when in fact you have directed their decision for them. Um, Another one is uh, a read, where by paying very close attention to a person's mannerisms, maybe a dialogue they were having with a friend um, at some point prior to the, the, uh, the encounter, the illusionist encounter with the, uh, the, the subject, um, they can appear to read the person's mind. As they sort of know the screen of consciousness. Um, it makes me think of murders in the room ward where Chevalier or whatever figures out what the person is thinking because of all the thoughts that the person had had up to that particular point. So he was able to... Um, that's actually a thing in magic. And then, so, and the two people I think of, and I don't want to make this like a, a plug for anybody, but the two popular illusionists I think right now, at least 
that I can sort of cite thinking in terms of television is um, David Blaine and Chris Angel. Um, they're master illusionists, and they're very skilled at other things too. Um, there's another, there's an asset um, called a shill um, or a confederate. I'll call him a confederate. Basically, this is someone who is um, a confederate or affiliated with the, the illusionists, but um, just play the part of just a bystander. So, you take a, a master illusionist and you give them a couple of good shills, and they can appear to do almost anything. So, there's really interesting literature out there. If you want to just, I'm not going to get into this right now deeply, but um, if you just type, you can do a search for like the miracles of Jesus and illusion, illusionism or, or yeah, illusionist or something. There's been lots of documentaries and people trying to recreate some of these events. But I'll just tell you just in passing that there's an interesting property of Jesus' miracles. I mean, they have a, there's a lot of interesting properties. Like, for example, we just went over five or a handful of different events, um, miraculous events in the evangelical books, and we sort of extracted from them a possible motivation or a why these things happened. Um, but they, all, they have a lot of other interesting properties. And one of them happens to be that they're all really, really hard to fake or to do. <laughs> like, you could, like, Jesus was not a cardition. There's this term called a cardition. It's a, it's a magician who has a very limited set of uh, different um, a- assets that they use or props that they use. Um, so a cardition is like a card, but magician. So Jesus didn't really do sleight of hand, okay? He brought back people who were dead. And um, he did things out in the open air where you can't, it's hard to, con- to do what they call black art, where it's hard to control light. And in cr- large crowds and small crowds with particular people in particular places, they're just really hard to execute. You know, he wasn't like palming coins or anything. Okay, so this is it, actually. There's, uh, we're gonna, uh, I'm going to introduce two points, two, two uh, positions, two conjectures or propositions, whatever you want to call them, that are, and again, they're sort of f- kind of flavored by my own opinion. Um, one property that a miracle has is that um, they tend to be categorical. So unlike a saying, like Jesus learned about the Beatitudes. So Jesus talks about, um, you know, blessed are the poor of heart or the poor in spirit. Well, someone can refute that, right? But it's not that impactful. Like if they, they, could, they could dispute it from a particular philosophical point of view, like someone in the first later on afterwards in the late first century A.D. could, you know, be hearing someone cite that or looking at some written, written recounting of the Beatitudes and Sermon on the Mount or something, and, and say, I don't believe, I think that the poor in spirit are all messed up. I think that that's ridiculous. I think that's, you know, but it's not a really impactful, you know, if someone did that, it wouldn't really, okay, so that's your opinion. A miracle is categorical in the sense that for the event that's recounted, you have particular players, you have an actual geographic site, you have a particular place and time. So you have these attributes to them. And, you know, let's face it, 
I mean, it may not be the most pleasant thing necessarily to think about, especially if you're sort of just kind of, kind of in a lovey-dovey kind of Jesus mode, but uh, he was very unliked. Jesus was very unpopular, and you look at what happened to him. Um, and the people who did not like him were people who were in authority. You had, right, the, the, the religious figures of the church from, of basically what amounts to Israel. You have the politics, the Roman politics. They did not like him. And it's interesting to me anyway that we don't really see any literature anywhere where someone said, hey, you know, um, you know, when Jesus was out there by the Sea of Galilee um, and he was healing all these people, you know, my dad was there. And, uh, you know, or my uncle was there or something. And uh, it didn't go down like that at all. You know, what, you know, the, you know this person that they say that he cured actually was a confederate of Jesus. They were like hanging out and they were like, you know, scheming like, oh, yeah, I'll pretend like I get healed or something like that. <clears throat> we don't see any of that. But think about, think about how active that sort of reputation would be in a state even if it didn't, even if it weren't true, you would think that in a state that is so um, uh, sensitive or so threatened by the teachings of Christ, um, that you would have some extant writings or some extant opinions of people refuting these events, and yet we don't really see any of that. Okay. Returning to the idea of why miracles are effective. And I'll, 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 uh, I'll give you all start my opinion or start my sort of closing thought by um, giving you sort of a scenario or hypothetical. So imagine you're driving over to a friend's house and uh, on, your, on your way there, you see a, the car in front of you, like right in front of you, just like spin out, just like go out of control and just like plow into a bunch of parked cars. And I could use a much more pleasant example, but for the sake of the hypothetical, um, just okay, so you pull over, everybody's fine, nobody got hurt, everybody's fine, some bruises and cuts, just property damage, right? So you get back in your car, say a little prayer, and uh, make it to your friend's house. When you get to your friend's house, what is the very first thing you're going to say, one of the very first things you're going to say to your friend? I just saw this really hairy accident, Right? Accidents, when a car wipes out in front of you, this is an unusual event. It's not something that happens typically. It's an unusual event, and it's impressed into our memory. The importance of this, somehow, it gets impressed into us. Now, looking at the miracles, you know, if, if you are the direct recipient of a miracle, like if you're, well, if you're dead and you come back to life, like Lazarus or the political figure's daughter... Um, or if you just happen to have this really chronic malady that has just besieged you for years and years and years, you're free of that, or you can't see, you're blind, and you get free to that, obviously that miracle is going to leave a really major impression on you. You're going to remember it for the rest of your life. But that's not what's happening here. I mean, we we do have an account in, in John where the blind man goes back and talks to the Pharisees and kind of says that once I was blind, now I can see. But these people are sort of, they come and go from the story very, very quickly. What's really happening is we're getting a very deep impression of all the second-hand participants, right? The disciples are second-hand participants here. They're just recounting what they're seeing. You have, um, right, just onlookers, these onlookers. And again, right, this must have left an impression. So here's... Here's my statement, okay, so 
The improbable is remarkable. Now think about that for a second. The improbable is remarkable to us, to people. The improbable is remarkable. And I think for most people, that statement is not remarkable. I think it's pretty axiomatic. We just, yeah, of course, the improbable is remarkable. We remember the unlikely, right? Just like the person spinning out in front of us. You think back and think about a lot of the things that you recall, a lot of the things that sort of stand out um, in your recollection. These are just probably very unusual events, collections of very unusual events, like unexpected events, uh, improbable, unexpected, unusual out of place. But to me, at least on its face, the improbable being remarkable is completely counterintuitive. Right? I mean, if you think about it just on its face, you think about it from an anthropological standpoint, um, you would think it would be the opposite, right? Because, you know, the, the success of an, of an organism is going to depend on its ability to react to its usual environment. Right, you have an organism that has a usual environment. It's able to adapt to the, the, you know, ebbs and flows of whatever um, sorts of circumstances it encounters. The remarkable, or the excuse me, the improbable, are things that, by definition, don't happen that often and really just don't affect you. So why is it that we remember it? Uh, I'll just mention, sort of in passing, that um, Las Vegas. And maybe, I guess, 10 years ago, Atlantic City, too. But um, it's, that's sort of uh, a device that a lot of these casinos use to sort of allure people. Is um, And this is you know, maybe not the kind of thing that you really think about, but it's sort of happening in the background, where if you go to Las Vegas, you go to a strip or any place where there's casinos around you, um, they have loud, like, bells on the, or chimes or sounds on the slot machines so that when someone hits, everybody hears about it. Um, and then, I, they don't, have, I don't think they have this, I haven't been to Vegas in a long time, but it used to be common practice where they had uh, what they call floor barkers, a floor barker. And uh, the floor barker would yell out when someone won at a game. Like if someone hit big, like on roulette or something, they would yell it out. And so that all the passers-by would go, would think, oh, wow, like, it's so easy to win all this money, you know, it's like all these things, it's like really hard to hit a number on roulette, whatever it is, and it's, but like here, you know, you hear Barker over here, Barker over here, Barker over here. Um, in his essay titled The Ethics of Elfland, The Ethics of Elfland, uh, G.K. Chesterton writes, we all like astonishing tales because they touch the nerve of the ancient instinct of astonishment. Interesting choice of words. But there is actually um, this essay, and I, I mean, I reread it, I remember having read it many years ago, um, has fueled a book, a very a recent book uh, by Brian Gillen called A Theology of Wonder. A Theology of Wonder. Um, I have not read that book. Um, I have not read that book, and I cannot tell you who coined that term, a theology of wonder. Um, it seems like too simple a concatenation of words um, to really be novel, um, a theology of wonder. Uh, the primary thesis of G.K. Chesterton in the original essay that he wrote, I guess is a little over 100 years ago, um, in The Ethics of Elfland, um, it's, a hard, it's hard for me to read. I mean, this is very erudite, 
early 20th century British writing, and it's a little hard to read, at least I find it a little hard to read, but it's really fascinating. I mean, he's just a wonderful intellectual. Sort of the, the idea there, the primary tenet, is that we're, we're all fascinated sort of uh, primally by our existence, like just our existence is like really fascinating to us. I don't necessarily agree with that hypothesis. I think most people just take their existence for granted, especially in the modern world. That's not really what we're talking about here. The point that I'm presenting is that there's something very, very odd in this property that we possess, in this attitude that we possess that we oftentimes never even think about, that we are enamored and we remember and we are moved by events that are unlikely, the events that are improbable. I would offer, and again, this is my position, and um, we're almost done. Lead us out in prayer and then have Dan uh, lead us out with the doxology. I think the reason that we're sensitive to the improbable, that we're, we're sensitive to miracles, because miracles by their very nature are, impro- are events that are highly improbable, is, is by design. I think that we have had this really counterintuitive kind of uh, this strange value system within pretty much everybody. I mean, everybody has this um, breathed into us by our Creator. And the purpose is communication. Right? We have this seemingly vestigial sort of attachment or this uh, real connection with the improbable or these unlikely or these miraculous events and we react to them in this really strange like sort of kind of overinflated way which doesn't seem to do anything to help our anthropological survival I think in my opinion I think that we are designed that way we are specially designed that way so After all, I mean, how does an infinite, high, wise God speak to his finite, not-so-wise created? I think it's quite a feat. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together. In this wonderful building, wonderful friends, it's a time at the end of the week or the beginning of the week, however you look at it, where we can get together, do a little catching up, hear your word. We're grateful that Damon made it by your grace, safely, however many thousands of miles that is from here to Baguio. Be with us this coming week. Give us grateful hearts, thankful hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.